All right, go ahead and open up to John 17. We are pushing right along in the Gospel of John. And come the end of the month, we'll be finished with it. John 17. This morning we'll be looking at the high priestly prayer. For the last couple of months, um, we have been spending our time in John looking at and kind of dissecting the farewell discourse. So Jesus, knowing he's about to be leaving, um, shares with his disciples starting in chapter 13 about his coming departure, about his coming leaving, um, without giving a lot of detail at first, but over the last couple of chapters, he begins to unpack that more. And now he lands in chapter 17, or we land in chapter 17, where that moment that he had been preparing them for has come. But before he leaves, he offers them one final thing, a prayer. Now, I want you to think about that. So Jesus, gathering with his disciples, breaks bread with them, announces that one of them will betray him. And then he spends the next probably a couple of hours just pouring into his disciples. Encouraging them with the promise of heaven, with the promise of the Holy Spirit's coming, with final instructions and teaching to remain steadfast, immovable, to continue to press on, to rest in the joy of Him. And at the end of chapter 16, He says, I've said all these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And immediately, Jesus turns in verse 1. He says, and when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. And he prays. And the high priestly prayer is unlike any other prayer in Scripture. I like what William Hendrickson says in his commentary talking about the high priestly prayer. He says this. He says it's the consummation of the farewell discourse. That all that Jesus has said, really in the Gospel of John, but really specifically in this farewell discourse, the, the promises, the encouragement, the instruction, all of that is rooted in heaven. And it's expressed in this prayer. And in this prayer, we actually see kind of three sections where Jesus prays for himself, Jesus prays for his disciples, and then Jesus goes on and he prays for the church. And so I want to pray for us as we begin to look at this prayer of Jesus. Father, you have been more than gracious to us in creation in the gift of salvation through the work of Jesus and in the preservation and the gift of your word 
we have in the Bible. And this morning, God, as we look at this last prayer of Jesus before his death, may our hearts be tuned in to the good news of Jesus. That we hear the message of the cross, that we see the truth of the cross, that we hear the words of Scripture, that, that all of our preconceived notions, that all of our thoughts just kind of be set to the side, God, and we would hear the word of the Lord. And that in hearing the word, our lives would be altered. Some saved, some spurned to love and good works as we rest in the grace of Jesus. More than anything, God, we ask that you would magnify yourself in this time. You would bless the reading of the word. And that through your spirit, you would speak truth into our lives. And fill us with the greatest joy. So we do ask that you speak through your spirit, in your word. In Christ's name we pray, amen. The main idea this morning is this, that as Jesus prepares to accomplish his mission of redemption, he prays for his followers to remain steadfast. And we begin with Jesus' prayer for himself. Again, verse 1, Jesus, when he had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. So he transitions from promise to instruction and now to prayer. And he lifts his eyes and he prays. Now, some people will actually look at that and be, well, that's kind of odd. But the, pro- the posture of lifting one's eyes to pray was actually a pretty common occurrence during this time. It was typical. And again, this prayer is unlike any other. Jesus is praying directly to his Father. And his prayer is that his time has come, his hour has come, and he's simply praying that God would glorify him. That he would be glorified in his gift of himself. See, Jesus came for one purpose. To glorify God in redeeming His people. All of history, not just Jesus' earthly life, not just the 30-some odd years He was on earth, but all of history, all of creation has led to this. It's all been pointing to this one moment. And Jesus knows this. Why? How? Because He's omniscient. He's been preparing them for his death that he knew was coming and he knew the details. And now he's saying, Father, the hours come glorify your son that the son may glorify you. So he's simply praying, God, I need you to strengthen me as I walk this road. The hour has come. He knew that the hour had come. He is omniscient. He is very God, a very God. And he's showing his godness in this prayer. But isn't it such a beautiful picture that Jesus is praying that the Father would be glorified in His obedience so that He could glorify the Father? 
I wonder how many of us do that. Father, give me the strength to give you glory. How often do our prayers look more like prayers of what we want to get and receive rather than what we need in order to simply give God what he deserves? See, Jesus' prayer is about giving God the glory. And a lot of people will simply ask, but Jesus being God, why would Jesus pray in this situation? Jesus was praying to the Father and he's asking for the Father to give him strength because Jesus knew the weight of what was coming. Again, Jesus wasn't simply about to be crucified by men. He was about to bear the wrath of God and and take his place as the atoning sacrifice for all of his people for all of time. He was going to fulfill all the Old Testament pointings to sacrifice. He was going to be the one true sacrificial lamb. And it wasn't the pain that he was going to endure by men. It wasn't that he was going to be rejected by men. It wasn't that he was going to bear the pain of the cross, the the crown of thorns being shoved onto his brow. It wasn't that he was going to be beaten, his skin ripped, his flesh devoured. It wasn't that he was going to have nails driven through his hands and through his feet or a spear jabbed into his side. That's not why he's praying. What he's praying is that he is about to bear the wrath of God, the just wrath of God from a holy God, a righteous God. For the sin of his people for all of eternity. And you think about that, right? Like you know yourself better than anyone else. You know the sin that creeps within your soul. How horrible it is in light of the holiness of God. And you think, Christ died for all the sin. For all of his people for all time. And in so doing, he bore the just wrath of God. And in that, we see that the cross of Christ brings glory to the Father. And the Father glorifies the Son by giving him the crown of life. See, the good news is, is we know that, yes, Jesus is about to die, but he's not staying that way. The disciples didn't know that, right? And so Jesus is praying for them, and he's praying that they be encouraged, but he starts his prayer by saying, God, glorify me, strengthen me so that I can glorify you. And see, Jesus' work on Calvary at the cross comes at a great cost to him, but it comes with an even greater reward for those who surrender to him, eternal life. Look at verses 2 and 3. It says, since you have given him authority over all flesh. He's talking about the Son. He's praying. Since you have given the Son all authority over flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the one only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. He's going to the cross to provide eternal life for his people. To reconcile us to God. To give us a great gift. Eternal life. So eternal life is only accomplished by and in the death and the work of Jesus Christ. 
Not in our merits, not in our efforts, not in anything we could say or do, only in Christ. Again, since you have given him, the Son, authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. It's Jesus' work. What is eternal life? To know him and be known by him. And to know that we will spend eternity in the presence of this glorious and gracious King. And it starts with belief in God and trust in Jesus as Savior. Again, Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised Him from dead, then you will be saved. It's not just simple saying we believe in Jesus. It's not just associating ourselves with Jesus. It's not going to church. It's true belief and true repentance. Surrendering ourselves to Christ and His work. To be known by Him and to know Him. Our Wednesday night crew, this will sound eerily familiar. It's not about a head knowledge. Because if we're completely honest, if we did a poll, a survey, and we ask you to write privately on a piece of paper, do you know Jesus, I'm pretty sure that 100% of you would say yes. But if we followed that question up with a set of other questions to kind of dissect that a little bit, what we would probably come to realize is that percentage would start to go down. Because as we understand what it means to know Him and to be surrendered to Him, we will begin to realize that what we say we know, we might not actually know. So it's not about simply knowing in our head, it's about knowing in our heart. That our hearts have been radically transformed by the work of Christ, that our lives are evidence then of that as well. See, again, because many will say that they trust in Jesus, that they believe in Jesus, but the evidence of our lives often contradicts that claim. In short, talk is cheap. Listen to what Jonathan Edwards said. He says, words are cheap. It is by costly, self-denying Christian practice that we show the reality of our faith. So it's one thing to say we know Jesus and that we're surrendered to Jesus. It's quite another to live for Him. It's easy to say that we associate with Jesus. It's quite difficult to actually live for Him. And so what Edwards is saying here, he said, listen, it's not that you simply say, it's that your life reveals your actions. Listen to what we see in Deuteronomy chapter 6. In what is famously called the Shema, it says in chapter 6, starting in verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. And you shall teach them diligently to your children. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down. And when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. 
And you shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Hear, O church, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And we shall love Him with all of our heart, with all of our strength, with all of our might. In other words, all of life is worship. And so we can say we love Jesus, but what do our lives actually reveal? What does your bank account reveal? What does your time show? What does your speech reflect? What does your work ethic look like? What are your relationships defined by? What would your children say? Say hypothetically, I pulled up a stool and I sat up front and I just called children one by one. And I just asked them a simple question. What's the most important thing to your mommy and daddy? Would they say Jesus? You know what my, think, my thinking is? And this goes for me too, so I'm talking to me because I would ask my kids the same question. I think our answers would look like this. Me. Work. Fun. Ball. School. Good behavior. Would it be Jesus? Because true faith in Jesus Christ leads to lives that are radically reflect the glory of Christ. Look at verses 4 and 5. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you. Before the world existed. There's a lot happening there. And one of the things that is absolutely moving to me. Is the heart of Jesus. He is longing above everything. To be in the Father's presence. And in so doing he's praying. Father. Glorify me because I have accomplished all the work that you have sent me to do. I've given everything to the plans of redemption. Let me ask this question. If you were to die right now, not this week, like right now, could you say you glorified God by accomplishing the mission that he gave you? And I want you to, like, this is like real question, okay? Like, really think about this. If you were to take your last breath at this very moment, and you were to stand before the holy, righteous God of the universe, because that's what would happen if you did, what would you offer him? 
let's just say hypothetically you knew Jesus, right? You, you say you knew Jesus. And, and you kept kind of playing this game of, I'll go to church occasionally, I'll, I'll, I'll live a good Christian life. And, and you go assuming you're okay, thinking you've got everyone fooled, but you kind of forget the big part that you can't fool God. And, and you stand before this holy, righteous God. And you all of a sudden hear what you never thought you would hear. Depart from me. And you begin to back, but, but God, I, what do we offer at that point? Do we offer a happy spouse? Do we offer well-behaved children? Do we offer earthly accomplishments? But, but I, I won this award, or we achieved this with our ball team, or I made good grades. I, I had a clean record. I, I was honest. I was dependable. I was a member of the church. I even attended occasionally. And I actually gave some. See, because all of those things are simply self-righteousness. Like you're trying to attain Jesus by works of the law. By checking boxes. But remember, Isaiah says that all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. Quick lesson in Hebrew. All of our righteousness, now this is like real, okay? I'm not making this up. When he says all of our righteousness is as filthy rags, he is referring to dirty menstrual cloths. The best I have to offer is nothing. And yet I think most of us live our lives trying to build up all of these things that we can offer God. Like, what can I give Him? He has all things. You ever have that one person in your family that you dread buying gifts for because they have everything or they'll go get everything that they want? Now magnify this to the millionth degree. See, the sad reality is, is we're all going to stand before this holy God. Like we're saying, okay, this is hypothetical that if I died right now, and, and you might not die right now, but you're going to die someday and you will stand before God and I will stand before God and we will have to go through this whole situation. So am I trying to um, appease Jesus or, or attain Jesus with all of these other things? And, and your list may be different, but these are kind of the you know, things that most of us seem, seem to go after. Or am I going to offer the righteousness of Jesus? And say, God, I have nothing to give, but I gave everything for you and I trusted in the work of Jesus. What are we attaining? What are we going after? And so Jesus is simply saying, God, I have done everything that you have given for me to accomplish. And now... Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. In essence, he's saying, I've run my race with endurance. 
I've finished the work that you've given me to do. And I can't wait to see you. Have you ever heard people like just in a circumstance in, in life and they just say, I'm ready. Come, Lord Jesus. And, and you think like, eh, that's a little radical. I don't know that I'm quite ready for that. I want to see my girls grow up or I want to walk my girls down the aisle, down the aisle or I want to accomplish this. That's what we mostly will say and, and think, right? We want to say that we want, the, we want Jesus to come, right? But if we're really honest, not quite yet. But as our knowledge of God and our assurance of the grace of Christ increases, all of those other things won't matter. When we stand before the beauty of Christ, arrayed in his splendor, the picture you see in Revelation, crowns upon crowns on his head and riding a white horse and the, the word coming out of his mouth like a double-edged sword ruling the nations. All of those other things will fade. And what we see in Jesus here is that his prayer for himself is about glorifying God in obedience to God's plan to redeem his people. But then his prayer shifts from him and his glorification to his chosen people. Right? See, the purpose of this prayer at, at this point is to keep them from wandering, to keep them from straying, to keep them from falling. And Jesus knows, and he's reminding them of this really important thing, that the only possible way for that to happen is with God sovereignly leading them. They can't do it on their own. Remember, they had not received the Spirit of God to live within them at this point, but they had been living in the presence of God in Jesus. But he's about to leave, and there's going to be a period where it's just them. And he knows it's only possible with his sovereign help. He says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And they kept, have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you and they have believed that you sent me. So I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. So Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction. That the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you. And these things I speak in the world. 
that they may have joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you may keep them from the evil one. They are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. Sanctify them in the truth that your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself. That they also may be sanctified in truth. Jesus is praying for his disciples whom he has chosen, whom he has set apart. And in here we see the doctrine of election. Now, what is the doctrine of election? It's simply this. That God sovereignly chose to save before the foundation of the world a remnant who would be saved through Jesus in his death. Again, not by merit, not by status, not by any other means, but simply by the blood of Jesus Christ. And I'm here to tell you that no other doctrine brings more anger and frustration and just brutality in men. Yet, there is simply no denying it in Scripture. And Jesus is saying, I'm not praying for the world, I'm praying for mine. You gave them to me, and I've kept your word, and I've come to redeem them. Hold them fast. Hold them fast. And, and I know that the doctrine of election does bring angst. And so I want to simply walk us through several texts that point to the sovereign work of Christ. Now, we could spend days doing this, but we're just going to bounce in a few. And I want, they're not on the screen intentionally. I want you to follow with me so you see that I'm not making it up. Start in John chapter 6. While you're turning to John 6, if you remember in John 1, Jesus says this, I Check that, in 14, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except by me. In John 6, we see this. Verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Let me ask you a simple question. Are people dying today without Christ? Yes. Does that make Christ a failure? No. Skip down to verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. Skip over to verse 65. And he said again, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Now, fast forward to John 15. Again, there's a lot that we could hit in between all of this, but, but we're just hitting some highlights, okay? John 15. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does not 
or that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may be more, bear more fruit. Already you are clean because the word, word that I have spoken to you abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I and I in him. He it is that bears much fruit for apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me, my my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done to you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. And this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Now flip over to Ephesians. Actually, on your way to Ephesians, stop in Romans 8. Starting in verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who were called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Note it doesn't say if they agreed. Verse 31, what then shall we say to this, these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Because he who did not spare his own son, again, it was the will of the Lord to crush him, but gave him up for us all, how will he also not, not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all of these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. And I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. That I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. What's he saying? I would give up heaven myself if I could see those who are rejecting God know him. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, 
is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever and amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise that are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. But what shall we say to this then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he who has mercy on who, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And you will say then to me, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But you are, but who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded to say to its motor or the potter say to, I mean, the clay say to the potter, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as he indeed says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sands of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And Isaiah predicted if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and been become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued the law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into the heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. 
For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how then will they call on him who they have never believed? And how are they to believe in him who they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Skip on over to chapter 11. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what was it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that could not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to them. So as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now I am speaking to you, Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order to somehow make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if the rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what would their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because their unbelief. But you stand fast through the branches, neither will he spare you. Oh, I skipped a line. Though faith, so do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then that the kindness and the severity of God, the severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, if the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own sight. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them. When I take away their sins, as regards to the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards to election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have been disobedient in order that by mercy shown to you, 
they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, who has been his counselor, who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For, in, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and amen. Now, what, did he, what was that about? That God has set apart a remnant to save for himself. We hear the promise of Abraham and we think, oh, that's, speci- that's specifically talking to the Israelites. But how many of us are Israelites in here? According to that. According to nationality. Any of us born as a natural Jew? No. So then do we have hope? Not according to that way of thinking, but what Paul is trying to say is not all of Israel Israel. It has nothing to do with who you are and who you were born into. It has everything to do with the grace of Christ as being set apart as his people. So it's by faith, not by works. Entrusting the work of God in election. Now, flip on over to Ephesians chapter 1, and this will be it. I will not read the whole thing. I promise. I promise. I will start in verse 3, and I will stop in verse, man, I do want to read a lot of it, but I will stop in verse 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him, in Jesus, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved Jesus. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which, we la- which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to the purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, in Jesus, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And you know that the next chapter goes on and on and on, that it's by grace that we have been saved. See, our tendency is to look at election as harsh and unjust when the reality is it's the most loving and gracious act of all. That is that God chose to save a remnant when all deserve death. So instead of us playing this like worldly, fleshly game of looking at God and saying, God, how could you do that? Let's actually look and ask the question a little different. God, how can you choose to save me? Do we not see the graciousness of God there? Romans 3, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We need to learn that our sin is absolutely despicable and deplorable and wretched in the eyes of a holy and righteous God. And quit playing the game that it's not all that bad, that I'm good enough, that God will look at me with appeasement and and, uh, that I have done enough to, to enter into his house. No. See, it's God who saves We can't come to him. No, we won't come to him. So I want to give you a a little bit of an example. 
we got a lot of parents, a lot of babies that are like around that one-year-old age, okay? Let's say, for example, I'm working in the nursery. Obviously, this is an example because I'm here. Let's say you bring your child in, your one-year-old. And I begin to ask a series of questions to that child. You smell good this morning. Did you take a bath? Yeah. Your belly looks full. Did you eat breakfast? Yeah. Your clothes look nice. Did you get dressed? Yeah. Now let me ask you this. How many of your one-year-olds did all that on their own? None. This morning I saw a video. This is somewhere in Florida. I think, I don't remember how I saw it, but it was on Facebook. Where somewhere this little boy fell into a hot tub. And what was deplorable about the whole thing is there were people around. They just weren't paying attention. They were doing their own thing. But, and, and it's like security cam footage. And his little brother is sitting there watching. And his like real little brother, like wearing floaties. But the little baby was not. And he falls in and he's just there. Completely unable to save himself. Until finally somebody realizes something that's not right. And he jumps in and he yanks the baby out of the water. And in case those two examples weren't real enough, let's say, for example, it's spring break. You go to the beach. You're swimming, enjoying what's probably going to be a nasty week. But let's just say it's not. It's actually pretty. And you're swimming. And all of a sudden you get caught in a riptide. And no matter how much you scream, and no matter how hard you swim, and how much effort you put into it, there is simply no way that you can get out on your own. Is your screaming, is your effort, is your swimming going to make a flotation device magically appear? No. You are in the hands of another. I'm afraid that we live in a world where we have built ourselves up so much that we have forgotten the sovereign power of God and our desperate need for Him. See, Jesus' prayer for His disciples is that they would be kept by God and used by God when He leaves. He wants them To remain steadfast because he knows as soon as he leaves, he's already told them, they hated me, they're going to hate you. So he knows as soon as they leave that before the gift of the Holy Spirit comes later that we'll see in, in Acts, that they're going to face some severe trials. So his prayer then is for them to not only trust God's power to save, but to trust God's power to keep them as they do his work and proclaim his word. See, living for Jesus isn't optional. Yet we say it is, and we act as if it is. Maybe I shouldn't say this, but I'm going to say it anyway. Look around the room. What's today the beginning of? Spring break. Now, 
I'm not wanting to sound legalistic. That's why I said I probably shouldn't say it. It's not to be legalistic. It's just a picture. It's a picture of what happens when we forget who God is. Right? It's okay to take vacations. It's okay to rest in the good things of God. So it has nothing to do with today and spring break. It has more to do with life. A life of living and serving Christ is a life that will be full of joy and rest in Him. Even in hard times, even in trials. So I hope you understand what I'm saying there. I'm not condemning. I'm, I'm, I, want you to, I want you to truly think, does my life reflect the glory of Christ? Am I delighting in trusting Jesus, in living for Jesus? Because I'm here to tell you that if, you're, if it, is, it is not joyful and it is burdensome for you to live for the Lord, you don't know Jesus. And so Jesus is praying for them. He's like, you're going to face hardships. You're going to face many dark days, but hold fast. Hold fast to the truth. I like this quote from D.L. Moody. He said, let God have your life. He can do more with it than you can. What would it look like if we were completely enamored with the glory of God? But Jesus' prayer isn't only for those living right then, the disciples right then, but it's for the church. So it extends to all of God, excuse me, all of God's people for all of time throughout the ages. See, when Jesus returns to heaven, he is going to give them the Holy Spirit. And he is going to begin building his church. And it is going to spread like wildfire. We saw it started in Acts, with Acts chapter 2, with Peter preaching at Pentecost, right? Peter stands up and he begins to preach. And you have all of these people gathered from all of these different regions who don't all speak the same language as Peter. And all of a sudden, they're hearing the gospel clearly. And 3,000 people trust in Jesus that day. And it doesn't stop on the day of Pentecost, but it continues to go. And the church is spreading, and it's spreading, and it's spreading. And lo and behold, 2,000 years later, and here we are, quite a long ways from the Middle East. And we have been showered with the gospel of Jesus Christ and, and God is building His church. And here's the good news, folks, that Jesus is still building His church and He's doing it through the lives and obedience of the redeemed. How? How is He accomplishing this? This text gives us two ways. Verses 20 through 26, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in Me through their word. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. That they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. So that the world may know that you sent me, and love them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. I to see my glory as you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. O oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. Starts with unity. The church should be unified. He's praying for them to be one as him and the Father are one. See, here's the truth, folks, that we are all, speaking of Christians, those who have trusted Christ are in the same boat. 
We are sinners saved. If you're not a Christian, then you're almost in the same boat. You're a sinner who desperately needs to be saved, and you need to trust in Christ. But we all Christians are in the same boat. The church is in the same boat, and we all have the same mission, and that is to preach Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I love, as one old preacher says, it's just one beggar trying to tell another beggar where to find bread. If I have the best news in the world, the only news that will save your life, why would I sit there and watch you drown? We must work together to accomplish this. Use your gifts. Jesus didn't die so that you and I can be selfish with our time, our talent, our treasures. If God gave you the greatest message in the world, are you going to just hold it back? It's like my my old pastor used to say, most of us treat it like this, that we get all we can, can all we get, we sit on the lid and let the world go to hell. But that's not the call of the gospel. The call of the gospel is to continue what, start, what God started in the work of the Holy Spirit in Acts, and that's to build his church by proclaiming the good news to all who would hear it. So we are unified by the precious blood of Christ. And that unity leads to the second one, and that is love. Look at verse 26. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. See, true love is only made known to us in the perfect relationship of the Godhead and the sacrificial work of Jesus. We talk about love and we say we love, but without understanding God's love for us in Christ, we don't understand love. And that love that God displays for his people in Christ coming to give his self for sin is the same love that we pour out to others. And here's the reality. That unity and love are hard. It's hard to be unified. It's hard to love each other. But they show the world the glory of Christ. You want to see something odd? See a group of people who have very little in common working together and loving each other when they shouldn't. I love the D.A. Carson quote, that the church is a band of natural-born enemies. But we're all brought together under the blood of Christ. Because He loves us despite us, we love others. And we show that love for others by telling the good news. Man, we could feed people and we can clothe people and we can serve people and we can house people and we can do this all day long. But unless we're telling them that Jesus and Jesus alone saves and without him, they will spend eternity separated from him in hell, we ain't loving them. All the mercy ministry in the world don't go near as far as it could unless we proclaim the gospel of Jesus verbally. So if we truly love them, we'll preach. Every one of us, not just me. Tell the good news. Listen to what Tim Keller says. He says, the opposite of love is not anger. That's how we look at it, right? But the opposite of love is not anger, it's indifference. If I truly love you, I'm going to do everything I can to see you redeemed. So Jesus' prayer for the church is to be content and to continue the work of redemption until he returns. Content in him. So are we being faithful to his call? Or are we simply being faithful to our plans? Flip over to 1 John 3. 
It's just becoming a theme. I'm going to have to like do something, but we're going to finish this thing, okay? We're almost there. 1 John 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but what we know... But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Remember, what did Jesus, what, what is, what's going to be said on that last day? Depart from me, worker of evil, for I never knew you. Some translations will say, depart from me, worker of lawlessness, I never knew you. Sin is lawlessness. Verse 5, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous. As he is righteous, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you all know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are the truth, are of the truth, and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him. And we, we keep his commandments and we do what pleases him. And this is the commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given the high priestly prayer of Jesus is his final dealing with the disciples as he's on his way out of the door going to the cross. This is the message that he leaves them in this prayer. He prays for God to honor his work, to glorify him. And he prays for God to keep and protect his people as they continue to live on mission for him. And so I want to simply ask you this question. Have you trusted Jesus with your soul, with your life? Is your life clearly being lived in unity and in love on the mission of God? Is Jesus clearly your treasure? If the answer to those is simply no, then I urge you to repent, 
to turn from your sin, to turn from your ways and turn to Jesus Christ. Folks, life is simply too short for uncertainty. Will you trust in Jesus today? Let's pray. Father, see what love you have shown to us that we would be called sons and daughters. May we hear that this morning and may we be transformed by the goodness of Christ. For those of us who have never truly trusted in Jesus, may we do that today. God, may you tear down the walls of hostility that are between us and you and may you come and invade our souls. For those of us who have trusted in you and we're just kind of in a stagnant place in life, God, set us ablaze so that we love by proclaiming the good news of Jesus to the ends of the earth. And may we find rest in the sovereign hand of our wonderful, loving, and gracious King. In Jesus, we pray.